720 WGN, a very happy Saturday afternoon, everyone. John Hansen here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I often talk to University of Illinois law professors. This one feels, uh, you know, I, we have a little rivalry with the University of Michigan, although they don't seem to think that because they beat us in every sport usually anyways. Evan Kamenker is joining us now, the former dean, currently a professor of constitutional law at the uh, Branch Rickey Collegiate uh, College of Law at the University of Michigan. Professor, thanks for hopping on with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here uh, and to continue the rivalry, of course. Yeah. Well, my husband went to Michigan, so I there's a go blue uh, magnet on our fridge. So uh, I, I'm uh, reminded of that constantly. But anyways, <laughs> we're not here to talk about that. Yeah. We're here to talk about <laughs> the January 6th commission, which, you know, on this show, we've kind of stayed. I don't want to say we stayed away from it. Just really hasn't come up in a deep conversation. I wanted to kind of wait until we got through this first round of hearings in which uh, kind of concluded on Thursday night. I know we are expecting more in the future, uh, but it was a very, as all of them have been, in many ways, eye-opening hearing on Thursday night, in many ways, kind of what a lot of people have expected. I guess, Professor, just your general thoughts on how the committee has done laying out their argument over the hearings. I know this is a broad question to start, but just kind of your 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 sense, your your feel of how the first eight hearings have gone. Sure. Um, well, I think that the committee hearings had promised to be one of the most important, if not the most important investigative hearings, maybe in our nation's hearing history. And frankly, I think so far they've delivered. Uh, it's a tough job to investigate, piece together, and publicize this story given that it's so far ranging. They're looking at events that took place over a long period of time from a variety of different actors, from the very highest official in our country, down to people essentially on the street. Um, And they're trying to do it in a way that would not only digest and present the evidence so that people watching on television could understand the history, but also that encourages more people to come forward which is why, as you said at the beginning, they're actually not done. They're going to continue holding more hearings as more evidence comes in. It's not been a traditional hearing where we're used to turning on the TV and seeing a, a, a panel of mm-hmm. members of Congress all taking five minutes at a turn grilling somebody uh, with a head, their head on a swivel. They've done the traditional hearing part in the background and are simply presenting what they think are the most powerful moments and pieces of evidence for us to understand essentially the results of their investigation. But by doing that, they've been able to to create a message that's been efficient and clear uh, and powerful. So it seems to me that, uh, you know, maybe this will be a standard for hearings going forward uh, where people could actually learn something rather than just mostly hear the talking heads pontificate right and what you're referring to those those five minute increments often uh, allow the politician a chance the the elected official to state what they want to state and then you leave time for the witness to answer maybe one yes or no question which of course they never do then and then there's a long explanation and yes we've all seen that uh play out in terms of from a legal perspective i just to make sure people understand exactly what the committee has the power to do and maybe just as importantly, they don't have the power to do something at the end. And I guess what I'm asking is, for people waiting for the Congress or this this committee to come down with a decision that could land the former president in, in jail or, or in some sort of court of law, 
that's not the ultimate purview of this committee, right? That's not constitutionally how this works. That is absolutely correct. The legislative committee is designed to do legislative things, uh, which means that its ultimate goal is to try and figure out, are there any reforms that they could propose and Congress can adopt to our laws to try and prevent this kind of attack on democracy from happening again? Um, They can put the evidence together. They can suggest those kinds of things. They can suggest that the Department of Justice further investigate the possibility of criminal prosecutions. But this committee itself is not a law enforcement body. Uh, So you are absolutely right. They cannot do anything in terms of actually prosecuting anybody from the president all the way down to people on the street. Um, That is up to the Department of Justice. And that's why, frankly, there is a parallel investigation clearly going on led by the Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, in Washington to investigate that other set of questions. And of course, as we know, there have already been charges filed in I think about 850 cases for people who were involved in the Capitol insurrection on January 6. Uh, so the, the attorney general has been involved in criminal prosecutions now for many, many months. The question there is simply, will the attorney general keep going, let's say, higher and higher up the food chain and start thinking about whether or not there might have been crimes committed uh, by any government officials and not just the rioters themselves. And these investigations are completely separate, right? I mean, the Department of Justice could learn something from the congressional hearing, request documents from that or video evidence or whatever the, the Congress has, but they, they are on their own tracks. That's absolutely right. Um, the committee has talked about providing, turning over essentially a lot of its evidence to the Department of Justice at some point in time, uh, but has not yet been all that quick to do so, which I found somewhat interesting. They're certainly operating hand in glove. But I think they're also right. My guess is that the Department of Justice is learning as it goes of the evidence being uncovered by the committee in part through the public hearings. Uh, My strong sense, for example, is that until the sixth hearing Even the Department of Justice was not aware of all the evidence that now makes clear uh, that the president and others with him knew both before and after his own speech on January 6th that the crowd was armed. Uh, Up until then, there had been all these stories about, oh, it's just a group of innocent people who are coming. Uh, I I didn't mean innocent, you know, normal law abiding people who were coming to to a First Amendment rally and then things got out of hand. Uh, it's now much more clear that there were a lot of people in the audience who came intending to intimidate and perhaps do harm. My sense is the Department of Justice itself didn't know that until mm-hmm. Cassidy testified uh, on national television to that effect. Yeah, and I think you're identifying uh, where there's a difference between and maybe a disconnect before between what we see in these committee hearings as oh, this seems damning versus what the Department of Justice might seem as something they're able to take and actually try and prosecute a former president with, right? Because there are different standards. The Department of Justice is going to want to, if there are any charges filed, I mean, they're going to want to and and need to show that it's beyond reasonable doubt that there was intent or malice, and, and we can get into that a little bit more. But I guess what I'm saying is, just someone on the couch saying, well, that's pretty, that's, that's the smoking gun, 
It's different than what the Department of Justice would determine could be a smoking gun. That's certainly true. And it's true, I would say, on two di- in two different ways. The first is, as you said, the standard is different, right? Uh, the standard of truth in a criminal courtroom is beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a much higher standard uh, than just persuading the American public. We, we need to remember there actually has been a judicial determination in a case dealing with uh, the attorney-client privilege where a federal judge has already decided that it is, quote, more likely than not, unquote, that the former president was engaged in a conspiracy to obstruct the vote counting in Congress. But there's still even a very significant difference between the civil standard of more likely than not and the criminal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. The second point, though, is that there are higher standards even for the evidence that could form the basis for a criminal court judgment. Uh, A lot of the evidence, or at least some of the important evidence that we've seen through the hearings is testimony by somebody who's really essentially introducing hearsay of somebody else, right? I was told that somebody else said the following. Those are perfectly fine for telling a story under oath in the hearings, but that kind of evidence can't directly be introduced at trial. Uh, And when evidence is introduced at trial, of course, there's going to be lawyers who are trying to uh, point out holes and try and get the witness to say things that are a little less definitive, perhaps, than they did when they testified in front of uh, the the committee, etc. So whatever the evidence is we're seeing on television, that's not necessarily how it would actually play out in a criminal courtroom. And the attorney general has to think very carefully about can they get the right kinds of evidence before a jury and then persuade the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence shows a crime. And the the Department of Justice makes all these determinations before they would file any charges. They wouldn't go forward and say, well, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll continue to gather this evidence and and present it. And uh, hopefully it goes well. I mean, they're going to make a determination at some point, uh, a go or not go. And and they need to be, at least from my understanding, pretty convinced that they'd have a real solid chance of winning before they would ever try and bring a case, especially in something as delicate as this. That's right. Um, But let's also remember, though, the go or not go decision, while it has to be made, obviously, at some point with respect to any given defendant, the attorney general can build a case against, let's call them the big fish, by going after the smaller fish first, right? Mm -hmm. And you could say, okay, we're going to make a go decision against some, let's say, mid-level people who might have had some involvement. And through that process, actually, perhaps get more evidence that could later be used against higher level people. So it may well be, for example, that when you start a, you know, a investigation of a, of a, of a, a criminal uh, drug gang, right? You can maybe only have evidence to prosecute the people on the street who are distributing, but you use those prosecutions to build evidence so that you can finally go after the kingpin. Uh, so it, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing decision from the beginning. It could be, well, we're going to first attack, go after the people who are engaged in the actual writing. Then maybe we'll go after some other people who might have been in the president's ambit, who might have contributed to this or that or the other kind of crime. And then we'll see at the end of the day what happens. Right. Maybe one of them might actually decide they'll cooperate with government officials for part of a plea deal 
And then that gives you more evidence that you could use as you go higher up the chain. All right. This is a good time to take a quick break. Uh, Professor Kamenker is going to keep on the line with her, us, and uh, we'll get to the news here on WGN. 720 WGN. Uh, we're chatting with uh, former dean of the University of Michigan Law School, still a professor of constitutional law, Evan Kamenker. And, uh, I, you know, a lot of people have criticized the committee. Um, while there are two Republicans on there, they are two Republicans that are no fan of the president. You mentioned earlier that this isn't that traditional hearing where you get five minutes apiece. And uh, some people might say, well, why, you know, there should be more Republican voices on there, uh, you know, countering these witnesses with that sort of back and forth. What is your take on the lack of or the, the, the bipartisan nature of the committee? Well, I do wish it was more bipartisan. Um, that was actually the doing of Republican leader McCarthy, who essentially refused to offer Republicans that he knew were plausible. Right. He offered people originally who themselves would become witnesses, as was true of Jim Jordan, for example. Um, I think at the end of the day, this, their strategy was let's not make it bipartisan so that we can stand back and then criticize the committee for not being so. But I also think that attack is somewhat of a red herring in the following sense. Uh, The committee has carefully and meticulously told this story through the eyes, ears and mouths of Republicans, Republicans who supported Trump and Republicans who Trump put in power, Uh, his lawyers, his campaign directors, his Department of Justice, his staff, people around the country who were working for him, Republican leaders in Michigan and Georgia and Arizona. So the witnesses that are telling the story are all people who said, I wanted to work for Trump. I supported Trump. I agree with much of what Trump did. But in this instance, here's my testimony. And it seems to me that that ought to overcome any of the concerns about bipartisanship on the part of the committee members. Yeah, I I share that desire that they had worked out a solution at the beginning, either in the Senate or ultimately in the House where this has ended up, where we had a more bipartisan. I think that that would have been really healthy, more healthy, perhaps, uh, for the country. Um, We talked about potential criminal charges against President Trump uh, and uh, the different levels of those. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the hearing, especially Thursday night, seemed to kind of be like – that the president just didn't follow his oath or his responsibilities to keep the Capitol protected, even if he disagreed with the hearing or the, the events that were happening there on that day or the, the, the certification of the votes. Essentially, dereliction of duty. Um, is that a criminal thing or is that just we're morally upset by that and then the voters get to choose whether they ever want to elect someone like that to be in the office again? Right. Well, it's not criminal. I'd say it's more than moral. I would call it a constitutional crime. Uh, Any kind of an attack on our democracy, an attack on the rule of law from one of our elected leaders uh, is, in fact, undermining the way that the Constitution is supposed to work. And clearly, one can talk about a dereliction of constitutional duty whenever a president sees an insurrection or a riot going on and then takes no steps to stop it and arguably, as we discussed earlier, puts fuel on the fire. Uh, What I would say here is that the Constitution is aspirational in this sense, right? The the core principles of democracy and rule of law are only going to be words on a paper unless our elected leaders breathe life into those principles by what they say and what they do. Uh, The peaceful transition of power is 
probably the cornerstone of everything we in the Constitution stand for. Uh, and refusing to facilitate that is, a, you know, in one sense, a very profound attack on our constitutional values. In terms of solutions, right, had any of this evidence come out at the time of the second impeachment hearings, I think the Senate would have convicted Trump at that point in time. So, you know, ultimately the solution here, the reason I call it a constitutional crime is perhaps impeachment really is the place that this kind of constitutional crime should have been proven. And it was attempted. Uh, But at that point in time, the House leaders just didn't have access to the kind of evidence they know today. And I think that. Can they bring bring up impeachment charges again? (laughs) So it's a fascinating question. Um, I actually believe it's possible. Uh, You know, the question really is, is there such a thing as kind of like a double jeopardy? Right. And I actually think the answer may well be no. Uh, We do know that an impeachment trial does not stop a later criminal prosecution, whether the impeachment trial ended in a conviction or an acquittal. I think ultimately it may be a political question whether or not the Senate could say, we now have new evidence. We want to reopen the original impeachment proceeding and start again. So I, I'm very glad you asked that question. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about this and was thinking about articulating this as a theory. So you give me a great opportunity. <laughs> to. Yeah, I, I just I, I don't know. Right. Because uh, like you said, uh, we have clear d- double jeopardy rules in criminal situations. But uh, the Senate often writes their own rules. And this isn't this this wasn't, I, I guess, anticipated by the founders or it certainly wasn't spelled out. Right. And again, we have double jeopardy rules because we're worried about people's liberty. Right. We don't want somebody uh, to be at risk of being imprisoned for the rest of their life by having the sword of Damocles always hanging over their head. Impeachment isn't about that. Impeachment is about saying this guy's not fit for a particular job. It's not about putting him in jail. And so the, the desire to say, well, he should be able to, to to rest in peace now because he was once impeached and not convicted. Doesn't have the same bite to it as it does in the criminal context. I know a lot of people out there would say, "Leave that up to the voters." Right? They've had the chance to see the evidence themselves. The voters make the ultimate decision, uh, and unless he is charged with a crime or you know uh, that or found guilty, excuse me, of a crime, he's eligible to run, and the voters can make that decision themselves. Well, that's true. Uh, And frankly, even if you were convicted of a crime, that's not an automatic bar to service as the president. So, um, you know, who knows what the voters might ultimately decide to do. But you're correct. At the end of the day, uh, the ultimate responsibility for enforcing our democracy and enforcing all of our constitutional rules is we the people. Uh, if, If we the people don't put guardrails on or hold our leaders to account for those guardrails uh, is pretty difficult to make the system run, even in a constitutional democracy. Yep. And I guess that's the perfect way to end it. Professor Kamaker, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And we'll talk again when the hearings uh, pick up again uh, in September. All right, let's take a break. Then we got news coming up next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom.